We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guests. These insights are also in the show notes. And all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for all the ratings and reviews. And thanks for the retweets. Now, on to my guest for today, Jessen Bradshaw founder of Energy Ogre, a company that helps Texans find the best energy plan for them in a sea of hundreds of options. Jessen came from the corporate energy industry and seems to have surprised everyone around him when he made the move to entrepreneurship. Before founding his own company, he worked for a small company in the electrical industry when the markets first opened up in the 1990s. This put him in a unique position to take advantage of new opportunities. When Enron quote-unquote imploded in the early 2000s, he became co-founder of his first company, Fulcrum Energy. Then, in 2013, he started Energy Ogre. Justin explains how free markets in Texas have enabled entrepreneurs to come in and set up a wide range of options, particularly in renewable energy, which has made Texas one of the largest producers of renewable energy, not only in the U.S., but in the world. Rather than seeing the free market as a problem that caused the devastating issues that happened as a result of winter storm Uri in February 2021, Jessen explains how the industry builds for statistical probability not to handle rare weather events such as that one. Jessen is a huge believer in innovation and the power of the market to solve problems, predicting that it'll be tech innovation, not government regulation, that will provide solutions. Now, let's get better together. Jessen Bradshaw, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for letting me come on and talk to your listeners for a little bit. Oh, yeah. No, it's going to be a lot of fun because you're in an industry, uh, you're in the energy industry, and there's been a lot of talk about energy, been a lot of talk about renewals and climate change and like all this stuff. 
And what's interesting about energy is we all need it like water now. <laughs> I mean, we can't really live without it. We're talking over Zoom. We didn't have energy. This wouldn't have happened. Um, and you run a company called Energy Ogre uh, out of Houston, Texas, which we're going to talk a little bit about. And there's just so many things to unpack about just so many cool things that we could discuss. But uh, before we do that, as I like to say, uh, why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today? Um, so I think it's so interesting. And I, I definitely want to go back and listen to some of your other podcast guests, because I wonder how many of these things show up over and over again. But um you know, some people can say I, I was in the right place at the right time, or maybe I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. I was irrationally exuberant about my capability set. Uh, but I, I had worked at a, at a pretty large company, uh, a large Fortune 500 company, and and uh, I was sort of young and naive enough to believe that I. I these people are morons and I can go, not, 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 not really, but metaphoric just, morons, metaphoric. Yeah, morons. I, yeah. I really got myself enamored with the whole idea of seeing an opportunity and taking advantage of it. And, and that's really how I got my teeth cut into doing some of this. Um, and it was just, it was a very interesting ride. And I think, you know, if you were to talk to my wife or some of the others, it'd be like, that's a little out of character for you. I mean, you were like, you know, company guy and, you know, not really a lifer kind of thing, but, uh, it was, it was a really, um, a strange way that I let myself, uh, take a chance on something else. And, and, uh, you know, super happy that I did. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, like you, I was doing corporate stuff and realized that bad corporate coffee was not for me. Uh, <laughs> I saw all the tea leaves or the coffee grounds, you know, on the wall as, you know, it just didn't work out for me. And, um, but what's interesting is you're right, like right place, right time, or just having the chutzpah to be like, Oh, well, I could do this better. Um, is that how you got to form energy ogre or was there a, transition between or like how did you get to what you're doing at energy ogre yeah so i i worked for this company and and i was really fortunate it was almost entrepreneurial itself when i first started there it was a relatively small publicly traded company and uh, i really happened to luck into uh, getting hired in for this position in the electricity business when the electricity space was really opening up um there, there was some rule changes that occurred in the 90s in the wholesale segment that the federal government had uh, liberalized some parts of the of the electricity sector. And we were some of the first, I, I happened to hire around with this company that was on the front end of that. So it was learning everything new and everything was kind of changing. So it was a really interesting time. You know, it was just a lot of, lot of opportunity, you know, new things were getting figured out. The, the best part of that was Although the electricity business had been around since, you know, 1800s in some cases, yeah, th this federal power marketing and the way this was all changing, it was all new. And so I wasn't really behind somebody else. Like, even though I was a newcomer into the industry, and there's definitely people that knew more of the, of the, the specifics of power generation and transmission and, and some of the electrical engineering work. I mean, I knew more than they did about the way wholesale power traded. I knew more about the way transmission tariffs were structured into this new world. And so, uh, you know, 
it was kind of crazy that those of us that had started and were in the front end of this stuff, you know, six months into working at a place, you're a grizzled industry veteran. You know? So <laughs> love it's, it. Uh, it's it's a right place at the right time for sure. Sounds like yeah, that, yeah. And, and it's it's interesting. You know, you talk about I, I don't have anything against having grown up in a in a corporate environment. I think in many respects, it was it was a very important crucible for me to learn. A lot of the things that I learned early on that I was able to carry over into starting my own businesses. Um, But, you know, you learn because there's so much usually happening in these larger organizations. If you're uh, able to be observant, you can learn a lot about the right way to do things and you can learn a lot about the way not to do things. Yeah, I think those are maybe some of the more important lessons. And so, you know, you can go to school. Uh, just being an observer in these much larger uh, environments. So, but what what happened was, you know, our business in the electricity space when Enron Enron imploded in the early two thousands, it really changed the entire landscape, and that's what kind of set the bug off for myself. And I started uh, my the uh, company immediately prior to this one with a with a peer of mine out there. Is you know we saw. Anytime there's these big cataclysmic changes, uh, and it doesn't matter, I think, what industry that is, there's always opportunity in the chaos. And so that's what we found is, you know, we were providing certain logistic services to power plants, how to get fuel, how to sell the power, you know, how to contract for power, all those different types of things. And all of a sudden, the energy merchant players like Enron and, you know, El Paso and, and, you know, Southern companies and all these guys that were out there doing these things, they're no longer either in business or providing those services anymore. So there's this huge opportunity to step in to provide some of these types of services. And that's that's what we started doing. And that that was my first foray into really kind of an entrepreneurial world. Wow. So you were in the industry energy business when Enron poof. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been in this for so like, I laugh about this with folks who are like, uh, I feel like an industry dinosaur. <laughs> I've been doing this for since the mid nineties. Right. So it's about as far back as the modern version of how all this stuff works goes. Yeah. Cause I, uh, I saw the documentary, the smartest guys in the room. I think that's what it was called about, about that whole thing and living in California and Gray Davis was the governor at the time uh, when they were, you know, preventing power from being put into California. The reason why Gray Davis got recalled and Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor was exactly because of that. Like Gray Davis had no, he had no chance. He just wasn't the kind of dynamic guy that could say like, well, this isn't my fault. He was my job and he got recalled and the governor (laughs) created the governor, you know? Um, it's interesting that whole California energy crisis uh, thing is probably uh, one of those things that I, I think is probably worthy of several hours of, of conversation yeah. because the, the conventional wisdom, I don't think really comports with reality of what was actually occurring. And so, but, you know, it's very easy when you say, Hey, these, these cowboy pirates from Texas are, you know, for, you know, turning grandma's lights off and it's just, um, there's a kind of preposterous notions, but that's really what, that's the conventional wisdom. And that's, that's what I think, you know, a lot of people believe occurred. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, yeah, we had a power plant, uh, for the company that I worked for, we had a power plant in Long Beach. 
And I don't remember when the Long Beach uh, plant was commissioned, but I remember going back and looking at the logs and in 1999 and 2000, Long Beach produced more electricity that year than it ever had in its like 60 years (laughs) of being, you know, in existence. So there was a legitimate energy crisis in California at that time that really, you know, uh, I, I think, unfortunately, the, the, the end users and the ratepayers in California are still dealing with the consequences. Of oh, yeah. Like I mean, PG&E, which is our, at least up here in Northern California, maybe even the whole state. I mean, you get PG&E transmission lines that spark wildfires, right? So the entire, basically the entire state of California is on fire. <laughs> and right. it's been this way, these wildfires have been this way for I don't know, as long as I can remember. I mean, when I was, I, I grew up here in California, so I remember some of them, but it's never been this bad. Um, and it's this failing infrastructure, you know, PG&E did not maintain stuff. There was really no, well, incentive. I think there's no real lot of competition here. There's some minor municipality competition a little bit, but not a ton. And so they just have this monopoly and it's, this is what you get. You get people that, you know, not that they don't care, but their incentives are not aligned. Right. Well, you know, you're, you're preaching to this choir because <laughs> I'm a huge believer in competition yeah. uh, and the competitive environment absolutely brings out uh, a motivation for innovation and important leaps forward to occur. Yeah. And uh, I think without that, I think that the, the power industry itself has really there's a, a, a creaking infrastructure that exists in many places all over the United States. And, and much of that in- infrastructure is really ill-prepared for, you know, some of these massive changes that we might see in federal legislation and certainly some in, in the state level things that, you know, we're, we're going to have some serious challenges of, of actually trying to accomplish some of the things that are, that are slated to occur. Yeah, no, it seems like the infrastructure is like, on its last legs. It just, it, it's baffling to me in some ways because, you know, it's so critical to have stable power. And if you've ever been to any other country that does not have stable power, you really realize really quick, like, gosh, this is not fun. Like India, you go to India, like I went to India for work in, in the early 2000s. And yeah. Almost like clockwork. Okay, it's time for the power to go out. And okay, the generator is going to turn on and like make sure you save your data. I mean, they, because it was just the infrastructure was just crumbling. Um, and even here in California, you know, we've got the rolling, rolling blackouts for when it's really high winds because a lot of the fires are sparked by power lines that go down. Or, you know, um, of course, <clears throat> a lot of it's also climate change and the, there's more severe weather here and it's more dry and more tender. Like, there's a lot of, crazy stuff going on, but I'm curious, what are your thoughts on how, you know, like you're in Texas. Um, and of course we all know about the Texas. Um, I think it was last winter when they had the February. Yeah. February. Would they call it the Texopolis? I mean, there was some cheeky, you know, <laughs> pout word. I don't remember. Um, yeah. I'm sure there's uh, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, from, from the outside looking in, it looked like it was a failure of the free market, right? Which I'm not convinced that's the case. Um, no, that's 100% wrong. Yeah. And I think I would love to hear your take on it and like walk us through like 
a little bit about what happened from, from your perspective. I mean, you're an expert in this, you guys lived through it. And then what do you think are some of the things that an entrepreneur, like in the more of the entrepreneurial spirit can kind of fix it or make it less vulnerable? I think would be sure. Part of it. Sure. Well, I, I think that, you know, like you point out, it's not a surprise. I mean, we saw some of the national headlines on some of this stuff and we see this, we've been, uh, in most of the larger metropolitan areas in Texas, we've been in a competitive environment for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so the competitive market has worked extremely well. I like to tell people, uh, you know, I actually pay less per kilowatt hour uh, for electricity service now than I did when the market opened. So there's, I pay, you know, less than or equal to what I did 20 years ago. There's just not a lot of other places where that can happen. And there's a confluence of a bunch of things that, that occurred. Um, you know, there's some interesting things about, about our market here. So Texas, the, the, the area of Texas, that's the bulk of the population centers is, is outlined by an area that's run by the Electrical Liability Council of Texas. And it's actually its own uh, interconnection, its own infrastructure. It's not really, it is not synchronously interconnected with the rest of the country. It's basically its own island. Um, there's certain parts of the state, like parts of the Panhandle and certain parts of Far East Texas that are part of the other, other systems, the other grids, so to speak. But generally speaking, I mean, we may as well be in Siberia compared to everybody else. We're, we're on our own for better, or for worse. And so uh, we've had an amazing amount of investment in power generation here just in the last probably 25 years we went through at the in the run up to uh, the competitive market here. Most of the older technology, a lot of our old coal plants got retired. Most of our old inefficient natural gas got replaced by a brand new, clean combined cycle. You know, uh, very 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 efficient power generation. And so we had a huge surplus, this massive overbuild, and it's taken a number of years for that to become rationalized. And at the same time, because of our wide open spaces and a competitive market and low barriers to entry for people to come in to build businesses, to serve retail customers, um, that along with uh, some of the federal subsidies, we built a gargantuan wind generation infrastructure here in Texas. So we have over 30,000 megawatts of nameplate wind capacity in Texas. And that's out of like our, it's 30,000 out of our, you know, 85,000 megawatts of theoretical generation capacity. It's a huge, huge fraction. Is that probably one of the biggest in the country? So I think that uh, I the last time I looked at it, Texas was the fifth largest producer, is the largest amount of wind capacity in the world. Oh, wow, uh, the world. <laughs> so we're behind uh, Japan, uh, China, I think Germany, uh, maybe Russia and the United States, but we're part of the United States. So we can't, you know, so it, it just, the scale of what we have from renewable generation in Texas is very, very, very high. And what's happened here in the last couple of years is we're building an equal amount of solar capacity. So mm -hmm. we already have about 9,000 megawatts of solar. Um, and so that, if you look at what's actually been signed and what's coming on, looks like within a couple of years, will be about 30,000 megawatts of solar. Oh, wow. So we're about to have a huge proportion of our infrastructure as an island served by renewable capacity. 
And yeah, so, almost two thirds. Would think if right. All the wind doesn't show up. Like it might be thirty thousand, yeah. but we might get you know three to. I mean, sometimes recently we've had over twenty thousand megawatts of wind. But wow, uh, it's it. We're we've, we're just going to continue to increase the proportion of the of the marginal um, uh, megawatt that's coming off of renewables across the, the day, and so those numbers are just increasing as time goes on. So we're very much. Uh, a test bed for some of these ideas yeah. that the rest of the country is talking about. And there's yeah. definitely some major challenges associated with that. Um, but, you know, getting back to what happened in February, you know, what's happened over time is um, we don't build our infrastructure around the one in 500 year type of, of situations and not to suggest that those weather events are one in 500 years, but it's like everything else, even our reliability, as you talked about, maybe in the United States versus India, from a planning perspective, um, usually a, a, a plan uh, transmission planning might say, hey, we want to come up with a, an estimated loss of load frequency that, that sets the base case for how we design, how, how many power lines do we need to put in place and how redundant, how over redundant can this actually be? And usually there's a format that says, hey, we have a, a, a one in 10 loss of load event, one, one every 10 years or something like that. And that's a very, very consistent type of a planning scenario. So it's, these types of things are, are actually designed from a statistical probability perspective uh, on the front end. But here we had an issue that we had this unbelievably cold weather. And so it really yeah. is hard to overstate how historically different that actually was compared to normal. I mean, I it's, think like one in, I think it was the coldest in a hundred years or something. It was, yeah. it was, it was a pretty substantial event. Right. It just doesn't happen very frequently that we have single digits in Houston. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's why you live in Houston <laughs> and not in Minnesota. <laughs> Right. And so it was, I have, I have some family in Calgary and we were laughing that it was warmer in Calgary than it was in Houston, which, you know, in February, which is pretty, pretty atypical. So, um, but yeah, there's, there's no question. A lot of the infrastructure is not built to withstand that. And, you know, for a lot of these plants, uh, their entire lives, they might've been in service for 30 or 40 years and never experienced environmental, uh, you know, a situation like that to try to operate within. So, when you get into these extreme hot and extreme cold, um, you definitely push the limits of, of the material sciences of the way these things are actually built and, and how they all work. So, so that's one. We, we had this very odd, very anomalous uh, weather situation that, that did two things. It put stressors on the equipment itself, and it resulted in very high electricity demand. The other thing that happens is when people think of Texas, they think about, oh, well, it's the energy capital of, you know, United States, et cetera, et cetera. And that's very, very true. But our system is really designed to deliver in our peak demand period, which is the summertime. And if you look at the infrastructure in Texas, we, we, we have obviously a lot of renewable generation, but we predominantly run natural gas fire generation. It's, it's very efficient, it's very clean burning. And if you look at the state, the way everything is set up, we have, a, we have always been a little bit subject to being more at risk in the wintertime than the summertime. 
because we have very, very strong pipeline infrastructure in kind of the southern part of the state. But in the northern part of the state, it's a lot less. There's just a lot less uh, natural gas pipeline capacity. So what happens in some of these winter cases is when some of that gas is being diverted for home heating as opposed to power generation, now we have this issue of you have molecules in some parts of the state that you have this problem of which is it going to end up going to. Less of an issue down here in the south, but it's a much bigger problem, but it doesn't matter because we're all connected together. So a problem in Dallas is a problem in Houston and vice versa. So we found a lot of very interesting things where procedure and some of the regulatory gaps and some of these weird contractual gaps started to present themselves. Like a good example of this is when when they decided that they had to start shedding load because we were having some difficulty with some of these power generation plants, what happened was some of the natural gas production facilities had their power interrupted. Oh, <laughs> it turns into a feedback. Loop, oh, yeah, right? that's a that's a that's bad. That's a positive feedback loop that's going to spiral out of control. So those are some of the things that happened because there interesting. Was, there was kind of poor coordination to begin with. You know, yeah. in, in the state of Texas, the natural gas business, the interstate pipelines, that is all regulated by the Railroad Commission of Texas, whereas the electricity business is subject to the oversight of the Public Utilities Commission of Texas. So they've done a much better job, and I really commend uh, you know, the, the state. We, we passed through some legislation, really focused on coordination and looking for these gaps. Um, also, the way, the way in which the power was actually interrupted was not as well thought out, not as well done as it should have been. So in the end, we should have been in a situation where folks lost power maybe for a half an hour at a time, and then it came back. And that didn't really work that way. And it was very poor coordination from my, in my opinion. So it was a bad situation. We definitely have some issues in terms of resiliency to work on, in terms of weatherization of some of these generation facilities say, Hey, it may never happen again. I can assure you that the, the guys that were, were in that business, they don't need legislation to go fix those. Problems. No, no, that's one thing that you like especially in engineers and people that like, like factory people, uh, you're, you do well, not want your, these, yeah, you don't want your factory to go down. Like no, yeah. a lot of these companies lost hundreds of millions of dollars because yeah. they sold power, they sold their output and then their plants couldn't produce it. So they had to buy it back at the prevailing market rate. So yeah. that's something that's not going to, you know, there's a tremendous amount of interest on the, on the part, even if there were no legislative, uh, changes, which there were, but that would have happened anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Would have made those investments. And so, you know, we may never see those kinds of circumstances again, but uh, I suspect that the overall amount of coordination and resiliency of what we see on a going forward basis is, is, you know, light years better. And the probability of us having an issue like that is I think far, if we, if we reran the tape with the exact same set of situations, I don't think we would end up with with the same outcome. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, and, it's, and it wasn't a free market problem. It was a coordination. It doesn't problem. have anything to do with that. There, yeah. there, there are folks that love the regulated model because it allows them to, uh, you know, what happens is you have a captive customer base that as long as you can put stuff in rates, you're going to, you're going to, it's death of a thousand cuts. You just 
we're going to add this other little small surcharge. We're going to add this in, this in, this in. Then before you know it, it's this massively uneconomic mess. And that's what we got rid of already once. And so the, the idea that these problems are, have anything to do with having retail competition is preposterous. Yeah, I, I think I think if the narrative, I don't know why. Well, I know why, because it's a red state, blue state. You know, everyone wants to point at Texas as some bunch of Yahoo cowboys. But the fundamentals of economics are the fundamentals of economics, no matter what color your state is. And it definitely seems like, and thank you very much for actually um, explaining all that, because <clears throat> I think it's very important as entrepreneurs and business people and just citizens in general we understand these things so that when we do tell our elected officials about some of the things that we need for better competition, better infrastructure, regulation that makes sense. I don't think anyone disagrees with regulate. I mean, you need to level the playing field. You got to have rules. You just can't be some Yahoo, but we want to have everyone play by the same rules and build an infrastructure that's, you know, works for everyone and compete. I mean, I think Texas as an example, I mean, if you've got the most, wind power and almost a lot of solar power than most any other state in the union. I mean, that's pretty cool. That's, that's competition working. And I think, yeah, being myopic that, Oh, regulate it more. We all, I mean, you don't have to throw a rock very far to understand it. That doesn't work very well. Look at right. California. <laughs> I mean, just, just, right. It's, it's, it's the experience that, that everyone's had. And that yeah. was really yeah. why, yeah. Um, that, you know, there was such a big push to, to push for, competitive markets. At the end of the day, it also, to bring that right back around to the, 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 the focus of what you have here is having, having a, an environment like that, that is, is one where you don't have a 800 pound, you know, elephant that is able to take over everything that can soul crush the industry and can dictate things. Having competition, having competitive markets gives breathing room for entrepreneurs to come in to monetize and bring creative solutions. You can't have that. It's very difficult, I think, for an entrepreneur to come in and provide a unique solution or to identify a real need and find a better mousetrap or create a new mousetrap in an environment that just stifles competition, just shuts these things down. And I think that when I look at states like California, I mean, California versus Texas, we like to think about them as being red state, blue state, but in many respects, I think they're very similar. So I look at the, you know, in the end, what Energy Ogre is, is we focus on energy, but we're very much a technology company that's wrapped in this customer service candy coating. And there's a tremendous amount of technology innovation that has always come out of California. And we think about that. I mean, I think people don't really translate this, the total state of hey, these are technologies, we can build this code, we can build this software, we can come up with this idea. What's, a, what's an issue or folks have, uh, you know, someone came up with the idea, of, hey, there's a bunch of assets and vehicles that are not fully utilized. How do we come up with some kind of a ride-sharing solution or property? That's an indication of there being an entrepreneurial spirit. And if someone is able to focus those ideas on and utilize a technological solution, right? But it's because that whole environment's not trampled on where it's regulated too much or not at all. There's just, there, there is a happy piece of that. So 
everything that's kind of happened in technology, what we're doing in Texas is not only do we have our own little burgeoning technology environment here too, but we've really, really focused on that on the energy side. And it's very analogous to, I think, a lot of the technology startups that we see in California. There's a lot of energy tech, uh, technology startups that are occurring here in Texas. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, like I, I was telling you before, my friend Brett works at a company called Dash Energy. They're out of Colorado and Denver somewhere. But uh, the just the buying and selling of broker and supplier of energy is is a complex system. And they're trying to solve it and make it easier to do and more efficient because like healthcare is another example. Healthcare is behind the times in like technology adoption. I mean, it's 30 years, well, maybe now it's 20 years behind what, you know, software guys like the SaaS guys, like the, the Googles and the Facebooks and everything like that. But I think another point that, that's really good to make that I don't think a lot of people understand is that highly regulated things tend to benefit the 800 pound gorilla. And it actually is a competitive advantage for them because you, as a little guy, you can't like, I, you can't compete with them because there's so many, there's, there's a, there's a ballast that you have to get over and you just don't have the resources. You just, and you see this in city government, which is really fascinating because, um, you know, I live in San Francisco, right. Which is of course, we all know the center of the something, <laughs> but, but what's funny about San Francisco is like, Okay, um, where the tech capital, one of the tech capitals, not you know Silicon Valley, our infrastructure here is horrible when it comes to internet. It's all over the map. We do do a good job of you know recycling, and we actually actually have a program here about renewable energy. You can opt in out of the PG&E, like like we you know okay, like good. But if you want to work with the city, if you actually want to get a city contract as a startup, non-starter, can't do it. And, and I remember I was on one of these boards for the for the uh, Muni, which is the public transit here, which, you know, is OK. People always bag on it, but they're they're doing a great job with what they have. And we were reviewing a contract to upgrade the um, communications infrastructure, like controlling trains and stuff. And I asked them, I said, how many people bid on this? Oh, only one. I'm like, only one. Why? Well, they're the only ones that qualify. I'm like what do you have to do? <laughs> I mean, right. And so they went through the whole thing and I'm like, there's no way a startup could do this. And the thing that they were doing, that they were trying to do a startup could easily have done. And it was, it was in based on the predicting where the buses were. Okay. This is not, this is, is not as mission critical as making sure that, that the, that the railroad switch works. But the but the the technology they had used one San Francisco was the first one to do this thing called uh, Next Bus, but it was twenty years old and no one could upgrade it because it was a closed system. No one could compete against it, and the contract to do it, the the barrier to entry, it was. It, you looked at it, you're like, "There's no way. I, it's going to take me years to figure this stuff out." And then, so what what happened was a lot of people would just kind of like that were creative would take the data and like hack some stuff together and it's stuff worked better than, than the real system, but you couldn't implement it because you weren't, you know, Siemens, right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and a, and uh, it's hugely, it's huge, a huge barrier. I think. No, I think that's what you find over and over again is you, uh, you know, given left to their own devices, a lot of these industries, when you allow there to be, 
you know, a handful of large players in that space, you know, for better, for worse. We see this in so many different industries where you want to erect barriers to competition. So it's, those are the right places where you want to have regulatory input that says, "Mm -mm, no, we want to foster a very robust competitive environment. Um, You know, we want to see those, those barriers to entry be as low as we can possibly get them uh, just to make sure we can incent bright people and capital coming in to solve real problems. Totally. And I think, I think if you look at the internet, which is probably one of the least regulated in terms of how it's built, um, but very robust, um, you see that. I mean, you know, it's got its problems, don't get me wrong, but it's it's a very um, robust uh, architecture that allows for competition, yet, you know, it's redundant. I mean, it, it's, they did a pretty good job, right? I mean, for sure. And, and I think- Great, a great environment for folks to be able to come up with ideas for things and and identify solutions uh, that they could bring to bear by harnessing new technologies, either ones that they were creating themselves or by applying certain technologies into new places to solve a unique problem that no one had ever found before. You know, uh, problems that have existed for long periods of time, like, hey, well, hey, I have some familiarity with this this kind of technology. And, you know, for us at Energy Ogre, it's very much that way. I mean, my ability to do what we're doing from the amounts of computation, the amount of data that we hold and store, and the the number of computations that we run through, the complexity of those uh, computations. If I were looking at my previous business, that would have meant that I would have dedicated rack space in my local data center over here. And I would end up having... uh, you know, X millions of dollars of investment in, you know, these numbers of blade servers and cross connects internal to the data warehouse and, and all this infrastructure expense. And today with cloud computation, whether with any of these providers, your ability to spool up processing power, your ability to store information, readily accessible information, your ability to, to integrate with you know, uh, whatever kinds of machine learnings or AI or whatever folks want to call from a marketing perspective, what they're doing, but all yeah, these types of technologies, as you yeah. apply them, it allows there to be solutions that are cost-effective that are able to be delivered to customers. And all of a sudden that we're out of the realm of possibility before that occurred. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, the no code movement, a lot of like, I'm almost to the point where products are commodities. It's really about the brand and solving the problem. I mean, I think that's what the internet and a lot of this software stuff has done and relatively unregulated. I mean, you know, we can debate whether or not that's good or bad, but I think it's a general good because that innovation, you know, like just today I was, you know, I have this new thing I'm working on and I'm like, oh, well, I got to set up email for it or I got to put, you know, point my server to it. And I'm like, 20 years ago, this would have been a nightmare for me. I would have had to call. I mean, I would have had my, have my own hardware. Now it's like I get on Cloudflare and type a little thing and I'm done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, for and, sure. I, and my idea may or may not be good, but boy, I can at least, I can build something and see what happens. And, you know, these, these infrastructure heavy industries like, you know, like power as an example or energy, um, you know, maybe not as 
easy to do. And of course there's safety and concerns and regulate. Yeah, I get that, but boy, I mean. I'm waiting for the, the next person that will come up with basically, you know, we talk about all the, you know, very much in the debate now about the ills of social media and mm. the evils and the, and the, you know, pratfalls and pitfalls associated with that. But I'm, I'm kind of a believer that like, yeah, I totally agree. These companies have these algorithms figured out. I mean, they, they've kind of, it's this systematically uh, scientifically understood the, the machinations of the way the human mind works and utilize your biology against you in terms of how they serve up information. But you say, well, we need to regulate all this stuff. Yeah. Or someone somewhere is going to come up with a better idea. that says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a dashboard. I'm going to create a dashboard that's out here and it's going to counter all these algorithms. I'm just going to get your login information for Facebook, Instagram, mm-hmm. Snapchat, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pull all these things in and I'm going to counter, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out what you're really all about. Yep. And I'm not trying to serve up ads to you. I'm going to filter out some of the BS. Someone's going to do that somewhere where you're going to be like, oh, remember all that, remember that hand wringing and all that pro clutching that we had about. You know, are these people evil and they're going to take over the world and we're creating social? No, someone's going to say, no, no, no. I got a technology solution for that. I'm going to fix this. I can totally fix this. Yeah. And I'm sure people are working on that as we speak. Oh, no. I mean, there's a guy, I interviewed a guy, his name name of his company is Tiki, like in Tiki Torch or Tiki Bar. And um, such like what he, his, his name is Mike. And Mike basically is building this thing where you own your data. It's anonymous. You can license your data to companies so they can market to you, but you absolutely control all your data. He use they use um, NFTs to make it anonymous, and he's like, "We're totally switching the paradigm. Like, it's your data. You own it. I mean, they want your data, and so if it's your data, then you should control it." And he's trying to solve it now. A lot of barriers and the huge and a lot. Some people are trying to do. There's lots of people trying to do this, but. I'm just like, that never would have happened like 10 years ago because he, the infrastructure for him to do that just didn't exist. I mean, even like search, you know, Google's the dominant player in search. Well, there's DuckDuckGo now. And I only use DuckDuckGo. And everyone, I bet you five years ago when they started this thing, they'd be like, another search engine? Are you insane? <laughs> right. Or, or even Tesla, an electric car? Are you, are you mad? Well, right. No, actually. I think the secret sauce here, like what you're talking about with this guy is like when we started doing what we're doing for focusing on the end consumers on, you know, a lot of the retailers here that want to sell to consumers, their job is to, you know, know, there's that whole economics 101, micro 101 is price discrimination. It's not discrimination like we think about it, like based upon your race or ethnicity or anything like that. It's I want to get you to pay the absolute most amount that you'll pay for this service. Right. And so we run counter to that. We had a lot of these guys that were really trying to actively work against us until we could, they're, they're trying to put us out of business before we ever got started. But by aligning yourself with the customer, like if someone were to come in and say, well, Facebook's not going to let me, well, who cares? If you're working on the customer side, then you, you can deal with these things without having to worry about they're, they're they're a service provided to these customers, right? And so I think that's what you're you're talking about with, with your buddy that's that's doing this about, yeah. you know, 
really trying to keep a hold of your own data. And hey, if you want to monetize it, you can sell it for someone to serve you up ads or something like that. Great. But generally speaking, I'm not I'm not interested in that. So I don't, yeah. I don't want to do that. But the thing is, like, we didn't have a choice. That, that's the thing that's just shocking. Not shocking, because you're right. Like what you brought about how they figured out how to hack us. And boy, a lot of the, you know, um, echo chambers that are created on social media are because they know what works. They know what makes them more money. It is not a surprise. And sure. yeah, that's free market at its free market in one sense, but actually not that free in another sense, because, you know, if I was free to sell my data and I said, no, then they probably wouldn't, this wouldn't be as profitable. I mean, in fact, there was a, when they did the iOS update, one of the iOS updates, you had to opt in for tracking. You know, you could, it wasn't an automatic, yeah, we're going to track it. You had to opt in. I think 5% of the people opted in. (laughs) So clearly like if, you know, if it was 50% or 35, okay, but, but 5%. Clearly, no, no, we want to serve you better. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you don't. You just want to make more money. But the funny thing about Apple, right? Like, just think of it this way. So then Apple's like, well, we're not going to track you. Know, we're the good guys. No, you're not the good guys. That's not in your economic best interest. Because if it was, there's some other things that are, you would definitely do something different. But you just happen to be on the right side of history because of competition and the general flux of the market. And I think you're right, like the macro, or sorry, the microeconomics of, you know, when there's no competition for that, then you're going to pay the highest price no matter what, because you have no choice. And the choice, when the choice comes in, it keeps everyone honest. There's a natural checks and balance that no regulation on the planet could ever touch. Like just, there's none, there's none that can touch that. Because that's the problem that you were talking about yeah, in terms yeah. of regulating and what's the, so especially in technology, you see this where yeah. the, the regulation is like 10 years old. Like it is, it is yeah. so far behind. Yeah. And you see this in financial services and, yeah. you know, yeah. the, there are all these new emergent kinds of things and it takes regulators 10 years to catch up. And then they start putting rules in place that don't have any relevance to anything that's going on anymore. So yeah. I, I think it's, you know, if you're a believer in, in markets, you know, that the, there is a way to efficiently allocate scarce resources, right? There is a way to do that. And having a profit motivation, as ugly as that sounds to certain people, actually gives rise to the most efficient allocation of scarce resources. I think the, <laughs> I think the issue True. that you'll see is that this part of the thing that we look at today and saying we have this problem with these social media companies and what they're doing and how they're weaponizing some of these algorithms around us to serve up data about engagement. I, so I, I Maybe I'm just an, an eternal optimist, but I kind of believe that we have that impression because we're taking a snapshot of the evolution midway. Like we're mm. not, this is not over. No, and oh no. I, I 100% believe to the yeah. extent that folks don't like this, Someone will bring a better, better mousetrap to the marketplace that solves that problem. Oh yeah, like, they're, they're already doing solving it. that problem today. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And so we're like, I think all this issue: do we need to regulate? Do we need to get rid of two thirty? All these things. I think those will end up being moot points at some point in the future because someone's going to design a better product or solution or technology that just obviates the need to yeah. be worried about those things. Yeah, but and I like your point about. What serves the customer? 
um, you know, like what's in the customer's best interest. And I, I think that's a very powerful thing that entrepreneurs should really keep in mind. Um, you know, I always like to say that, that it's an honor to do what we do. Like society actually gives us a lot of freedom. I mean, you know, for good or for ill, like they go, Hey, go try some stuff. You're probably going to fail. That's okay. Move the world forward. And I, 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 I truly believe that entrepreneurship is the only way to move things forward, innovate, help local communities, like communities that, you know, thrive because it, it's centralized control of anything never works. And we've got so many proof points in that. I mean, even look at China who originally started, you know, China and Russia, they're not communist slash social. They're a little more, but they're mostly capitalists because they know that worked. And yeah, it, it's got its flaws, but can't think of a better way. I mean, it's, it's, it's just read history <laughs> and, well, and you know, it's interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a closed book. I think what happens is a lot of people, especially younger folks, they look at the competitive landscape and they mistake a lot of the markets that they're familiar with of being capitalistic. And what they really are is you have large companies that have control yeah, and have created monopolist. barriers to entry. So they're not right. looking at yeah. truly competitive markets. They're saying how valuable that actually is. They're, they're looking at, you know, large companies that throw their weight around that yeah. they don't care about their customers. Like, yeah, I mean, you would have a bad impression about if you, if, if you think that's what capitalism is, where someone's lobbying a politician to, to take money from a, you know, there's so many of these big industries that, that have kind of gotten that way where you have two or three players in there. Like, can you, can you imagine it, a, someone that wants to, to develop a, a new commercial airplane? I mean, I know there's lots of guys that are out there trying to do that stuff, but th- just the amount of government slash industry that would conspire to soul crush, uh, you know, a new competitor. In I mean, space is just well, look at, look at the automotive industry, right? which is generally competitive. I mean, there's what? How many? At least twenty, maybe car companies. Way more competitive than like, you know, airliners, which there's really only two: Airbus, and, you know, and Boeing. Um, but even then, in that competitive market, look when they looked at when they looked at the electric car, and they looked okay, Tesla as an example. <laughs> I mean, like this is insane. Like, or or even the thing that I always thought was really funny was even hybrid, hybrid car. So you know, the Prius, right? When you look at how they had to get the Prius approved, Prius would turn its engine off. That wasn't, le- I mean, state of California, that wasn't legal. You couldn't do that. And you're like, hold on. <laughs> right. I mean, they fixed it, but like, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's like wild west, right? Because that's bad too. But, but the playing, the, the whole point of this, the reason I bring this up for entrepreneurs is like the playing field, what we want is the level playing field where we've got a referee that knows the rules of the game. And we're playing by the rules and it's based on our effort, competition, innovation. We don't want it to be, oh, you know, you're a big company. So you lobby this thing to, to literally make regulations that work for you. Like that's it. That's all. There, there's no if anyone thinks that regulations are benefit for the small guy, especially the entrepreneur, they're just totally, that's not true. 
It's all the big companies. You can see this. Look at pharmaceutical companies. It's the best example. Well, you know? the good news, I mean, not to be the eternal optimist again, but <laughs> no, the heartening thing about this, particularly for folks that have an entrepreneurial outlook on these things, and they have that, that, that sincere interest to bring innovation is, let's, I mean, if you were to go back and look at the highest market cap companies in the United States, mm. And look at that, you know, the, just who is in who is in the Dow versus yeah. what it was 10, 15 years ago. Right. There's always a sea change that occurs. And that's why it's always a new emergent technology. It's always a new, and whether that's, you know, true code or whether that's in a mechanical invention, these are things that that they're is 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 disheartening as it can be. I'm sure there, you know, before we had, you know, automobiles, there was some dude that was in the, you know, the um, you know, the horse buggy, you know, the buggy consortium, whip, the whip, yeah, the, <laughs> the consortium that was conspiring to keep out, you know, the new there were no, there's no, there's right. there was that for the car. Oh, the car's more dangerous. You know, like they had the oh no, they and and the other thing about like electric infrastructure, just because I love this stuff, this history is so great, like. Okay, everyone's like, it's too expensive to do like the hydrogen highway or all electric for all of these cars. Oh, we're going to get rid of gas. It's going to be abysmal. Well, there was a time where there was no gasoline and there were horses and buggies and we had to build the infrastructure for gas. And you know what? It was the exact same argument, like to the, just replace the technology. So it's, yeah, it's painful now, but like, that's the future. Like, right. this is what innovation's taken us this way because it makes sense. And I'm just, it's just so we could talk for hours about this because it, it's really important as entrepreneurs and as citizens, but as entrepreneurs to just understand these macro trends, understand the history of innovation, and being able to plug in and be like, well, here's an opportunity. And there's an opportunity here because market demand, serving the customer better, even, I mean, to a certain degree, regulatory change, but like typically it's like, wow, there's a better opportunity to serve a customer. And I know that's what you're trying to do at, at, at energy ogre, I'm sorry, energy ogre, because, you know, it's probably pretty complex to figure out like where to buy well, energy from and all that. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you talk about that, I mean, the, the good news, bad news is that for, for folks that go off and start their own businesses, you know, it's definitely a little bit of a different breed. On the one hand, I'd love for more people to do that. On the other hand, if everybody were doing it, there probably a lot less opportunity for those of us who are. So you know, to, to, to each, to each, <laughs> to each is, his own. Uh, yeah, um, I agree. I agree. You know, you know but you know, there are a lot of folks that are going to be disheartened by looking at an industry that's just overly stacked. Um, you know, with these large incumbent players, and say, I, I don't want to do it. But if you're somebody that came up and said, Hey, uh, yeah. The, Here's what the industry looks like today. These guys are all doing the same thing. Here's a totally different approach and nobody is going to compete with me and I can take all their market share away over a long enough period of time. Yeah. I mean, whether whether you like Elon Musk, whether you don't like Elon Musk, he was able to organize capital to get uh, you know, a new industry up and running in the in the electric vehicle space that folks had thought was like a sideshow or wasn't going to get there or whatever that was, even the large manufacturers in the space lapped in his face. And now, you know, somewhat humorously, partially because it's a function of the totality of the ESG movement, but now we have, 
you know, all, all these other, you know, manufacturers, notably the ones in Europe that say they're going to phase out internal combustion engines within five to 10 years or something yeah. of that nature. So yeah, yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's not like you're building a better car. You just went to do something totally different. Like I'm not even competing with any of these people. I'm, I'm actually creating something totally different. Right. I'm right. solving a customer need and an end use problem. Now that's a different one because you got to organize a tremendous amount of capital. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a very interesting, and again, you sometimes have to wait for the situation to ripen, right? So the yeah. technology may not have been mature enough 100%. with all those different parts and pieces, but sometimes the, the true entrepreneur is the one who's able to, they're almost a little bit of an alchemist. You're able to take these, uh, understand when these ingredients are ripe. You know, if you're making a pasta sauce, you, you want to have the right kinds of yeah. ingredients, this fresh oregano, these other, you know, these these tomatoes and this tomato paste and all of these parts and pieces of recognizing when all those ingredients are ripened at their, at their peak is, is a skill in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, Elon did the same thing with space, right? SpaceX. I mean, commercial space travel, like that's insane, but yet it's going to happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's because of innovation and, you know, it, it's just so fascinating. I mean, again, I could talk about this forever because there's so many good lessons to learn from history. Not to say that history repeats itself, but it, it, it definitely rhymes. So you got to pay attention to the, to the trend. So, uh, Jessen, just, wow. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's a great, great honor. I really appreciate you explaining, you know, how the Texas energy thing goes. And I think a lot of people can learn that, you know, dig a little deeper, like think about it a little bit more. It's not just the echo chamber of where you're from, you know, reach out, (laughs) think a little bit more, think a little bit more. Yeah. It's a, there's, there's tons, you know, the the longer I've been in this stuff, the more I look around, I, I just see more opportunity and more options and, you know, it just definitely becomes a way that you approach the world around you and what you see and, what you get excited about. So, you know, I'm really thankful for all the little parts and pieces that got me into the good bounces and all the people that, uh, you know, I was able to, to pick their brains over the years to, to get on this path for myself. And I love what you're doing. I, I think it's, you know, a lot of times when you're trudging off doing something as an entrepreneur or you're on your own, it can feel like a lonely journey, or you might have somebody else that, that can mentor you a little bit, but, but honestly, you know, it's, it, it can be lonely and you know, there can be a lot of self-doubt associated yeah, with some sure. of this stuff. So sure. what you're doing and spreading the word and spreading some of these messages and, and bringing people on that, that, that can share their stories is just a huge, huge um, service to the, to the community as a whole. So I, I really appreciate your, you letting me come on and speak to your listeners. Yeah. Thank you so much. Stay safe and we'll be in touch. Thanks so much, Jessen for just a great interview and a lot of really cool insights. Um, I just loved the insider info (laughs) on what happened in Texas in 2021, February, 2021 and the whole Enron thing. So as promised, here are the actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Jessen. Jessen's approach is to align with the customer rather than to react what others are doing. Sometimes this can be a starting point for solving a problem in a unique way. And I think this is a important point. Um, always start with the customer in mind, of course, customer demand, market, 
etc. I know a lot of times people quote the whole uh, Steve Jobs thing like, well, customers don't know what they want. Well, they do, um, depending on the industry you're in. So if you're going to build something in an already like established industry, then yeah, you're going to need to know what people want. What's their big pain, right? Similarly, don't be intimidated by the big players. Look for an opening or where something might be missing and focus on that. Yeah, I mean, never worry about the big company. <laughs> you know, they're inundated with meetings and other things, and they're not going to go after small markets, right? They, they're looking for the next billions and billions of dollars to add to their, you know, bottom line in the next two quarters. Um, it's notoriously hard for big companies to innovate. I mean, just think of it, like 20, 30% of their time just spent in meetings and status meetings and more meetings. So as a startup, um, you can be way more nimble. So never, never fear the big guy. I mean, they're not going to crush you. They, they probably don't even know you exist yet. Justin acknowledges that entrepreneurship can be lonely. Mentors, coaches, and support networks, including this podcast, right, can help the road feel less lonely. And yeah, I mean, that was very kind of him to say. And uh, that's the reason why I do this podcast. So Everyone out there who's doing the entrepreneur game um, doesn't feel so alone because it can be a lonely game, can be a lonely um, career vocation, but of course it's extremely rewarding and, you know, we love the freedom. So there you have it, the actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Jessen. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.